From PRX, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. In the spirit of loving the outdoors and biophilia, we look to the Japanese tradition of forest bathing as a tool for staying healthy. If you do one session of forest bathing for even 20 minutes, we see an increase in what's called the NK cells or the natural killer cells. And these are the cells that protect us from viruses and even from tumor formations. Also, the culture of long-distance hiking, from trail names to trail magic. Trail magic is literally any act of kindness toward a hiker. Whether you have a bit of your town lunch left over, you're going out on a day hike, and you run into a longer-distance hiker, and you see them eyeing that piece of pizza you're just planning on taking home and throwing away, and you give it to them, and you've just made their day. That's trail magic, and you, who have done that, is a trail angel. That and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. From PRX and the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios at the University of Massachusetts, Boston, this is an encore edition of Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Since 2010, more than 120 million trees have died in California alone. Bark beetles, drought, and wildfires are largely to blame, and according to forest modeling research, those tree deaths in California can have a big impact on other parts of the country as far away as the East Coast. University of Washington professor Abigail Swan published her research in the journal Environmental Research Letters. We looked at a bunch of regions in the U.S., and we looked at what would happen if forests were removed in those regions. And these are regions that the National Science Foundation has identified as sort of eco-regions. And we took each of these ones that had a lot of forest cover in them, and we said, what would happen if those forests were gone? So it turns out that plants are able to influence the atmosphere around them so they can influence the local climate that's experienced nearby. But the, the atmosphere, because it is, is circulating around, is moving, those local changes, they can get communicated to other places. And so changes in plants in one location can actually have impacts on the climate somewhere else. And that can also impact the plants somewhere else because plants are influenced by the climate that they're experiencing. We found that the location of the forests really matter. So in general, losing tree cover in the West, particularly in areas like California, had bigger negative impacts, meaning it it led to less plant growth across the continental U.S. But there were some places where removing trees led to more plant growth across the U.S. in general. So what makes the difference? It's really the location of where those plants are and how they're able to influence the atmosphere and what changes in climate that leads to that plants care about. So what we found is that in general, plants grew more when the summers were a little bit cooler and a little bit wetter. And so if forest loss led to hotter summers or drier summers, then we saw less benefit for plants in general. How exactly does that work? I imagine it's related to evaporation, among other things. Right. Well, um, the local surface temperatures care a lot about how much water gets evaporated. So in general, when water is able to evaporate off the surface, you'll get less change in temperature. So your skin, when water evaporates off your skin, when you sweat, it helps keep you cool. If there isn't as much water available, the surface is likely to get warmer. And so that influences the local temperatures. The reason the atmosphere can sort of propagate that signal elsewhere is because It's essentially, you know, the atmosphere is a big fluid, and so waves and other things propagate in the atmosphere, and that signal can be transmitted somewhere else where it then has some impact on climate. The really classic example of this would be like an El Nino. So we're all pretty comfortable with the idea that this thing called El Nino influences climate 
in places in North America, but it's actually a big sloshing around of temperature in the tropical Pacific Ocean. And so that big sort of oscillation in temperature in the tropics influences the atmosphere, kind of like dropping a rock in the pond. And that signal propagates to North America, where it then influences temperature or rainfall over different parts of the U.S. So what you're saying is if you lose a bunch of trees in California, it's like dropping a rock into this fluid we call the atmosphere, and the ripple will come out east, and it'll have effect on trees there. That's the idea. And our hypothesis, based on these simulations, is that that impact is generally bad for plants across the eastern U.S. And remind us of what's driving the tree loss to begin with in the West. Right. So the the tree loss that we are seeing across California has really been driven by an extreme drought over the last few years. So it's been very dry. And I think the Forest Service has estimated about 120 million trees have died due to these really harsh conditions of low water and high temperature. And so there there has been pretty significant tree death occurring across California just in the last couple of years. But more extensively across the Western U.S. in the last decades, we've seen a lot of trees that have died due to beetle outbreaks and other pest problems. A couple of decades ago, people looking at how much carbon was going into the atmosphere from North America were doing a happy dance about all the trees that had come back in the east. that had been cut down and during the farming in the 1800s, and, and now it's this area, especially the Adirondacks, is afforested, as you guys would say, and that this was sucking a lot more carbon out of the atmosphere. What you're telling me is, is that, oh, wait a second, those trees may not be in such a great position now to remove carbon, given what's happening out west. Well, that's possible, right? And, and this is one of the big uncertainties of how much carbon the whole land system will be able to store going forward is you know, we, we, there has been an uptake of, of carbon by those forests as they regrew, but I think it's very uncertain what that will look like as we go into the future, either in North America or really anywhere else on the globe. There's things about a changing climate that will help plants grow better, like increasing temperatures in places that were colder. Higher levels of carbon dioxide help plants grow a little bit more, but if they become more water stressed or if it leads to more plant death, that could be really bad. And this is a a huge open question in our scientific field that we really don't know the answer to yet. So, Abby, you you study atmospheric science and biology. Um, Sometimes you scientists say that our present time, or up until recently anyway, we were in a fairly stable, what you call an interglacial period, that things were staying pretty much the same. To what extent does your research suggest that, well, things really aren't so much the same anymore? Right. Well, I'd say um, climate change in general is pushing us very strongly out of that stable environment that we've been in in the past. And as you mentioned, climate change can lead to more stress on trees that can lead to more tree loss. And we think that in a specific example of our own research that this would have these larger scale impacts. In general, I think if we think about land systems and and plants and how they grow, there's a lot of unknowns about what tipping points might exist. If you think about a system like the Amazon forest and is it vulnerable to change? What will that system look like in the future under a much hotter climate? We have no examples on earth right now to compare that to. There aren't places that are hotter than the Amazon, but also wet. So we have no place to look to see what that might be like. And so there's a lot of work to do from a scientific standpoint to try to understand that. But also I think it's important to say that we don't understand yet, but the potential is scary. 
A number of years ago, the, the, the Met Office, that is the UK Weather and Climate Modeling Group, said that by the year 2050, the Amazon really could just be a grassland. What do you make of that research? And given your research, what might that tell us or what might that warn us? Right. So there's been a lot of work since the original findings came out. And I think that we understand a lot more about what some of the limitations were of those original studies. But the sort of premise still exists that the Amazon will be experiencing a very unseen climate or, or unseen in, in any sort of human time scales. Um, maybe if we go back to the time of dinosaurs, there were temperatures that were that high. But that this is a really new or novel climate that the Amazon will be experiencing. And there's a real question as to what that forest will look like. I think there's less of a thought that it would collapse completely into a grassland, but still a lot of questions of if it will be able to maintain as many trees or as high of a biomass or as high of a biodiversity as it does now. Abigail Swan is an associate professor in the Departments of Atmospheric Science and Biology at the University of Washington in Seattle. Well, one of the many animals that makes its home in the eastern forest we've been hearing about is the eastern wood peewee. And as Bird Notes' Mary McCann reports, the once common woodland flycatcher is now a species of concern. Each year, by mid-May, a plaintive whistled song carries through the forests of eastern North America. It's the voice of the eastern wood peewee, returned to nest after a winter sojourn in South America. An eastern wood peewee perches inconspicuously in the shady interior of the forest. Inconspicuous, that is, until it sallies out to catch a flying insect. Or until it offers up that unmistakable song. But for the past 25 years, the number of eastern wood peewees has fallen across much of the bird's range. How is it that even a once common bird can decline so steadily? Fragmentation of forests into ever smaller tracts, as well as forest disturbance, such as heavy browsing by overabundant white-tailed deer, are part of the problem. So is the loss of forest in the bird's South American winter range. As a result, the eastern wood peewee is now a species of high conservation concern. What practices can help stem the decline of the eastern wood peewees and other forest birds? Well, Providing economic incentives for private landowners who save forests is one. Enacting policies that promote smart growth and curb urban sprawl is another. I'm Mary McCann. For pictures, flit on over to the Living on Earth website, LOE.org. If you like what you hear on Living on Earth, please join us with a gift of $5 or more. Just go to LOE.org and click on Donate at the top of the page. And thank you.
And now let's head under the sea in search of a long-lost forest. That's right, deep beneath the surface of the Gulf of Mexico, off the Alabama coast, lies an ancient cypress forest that only a handful of people have ever seen. One of those lucky few is Ben Rains, director of the Weeks Bay Foundation, and he explained how it all came about. For many years, I was the environment reporter for the paper down here, the Press Register. And so I I, uh, had a buddy who owned a scuba diving shop, and he used to taunt me with this tale of an underwater forest that he had been diving on one time. And I pestered him for years and years and years, and he finally agreed to take me out there. He heard about it from a fisherman who just noticed a ledge on his bottom machine as he was riding across the Gulf. So he started fishing there and catching a lot of red snapper. And he gave the numbers, the GPS coordinates, to uh, my buddy that owns the dive shop and asked him to go out there and see what it was. He hit the bottom and said, there's a bunch of trees. Now, how deep is deep for an underwater forest? Well, this is about 60 feet. We, of course, all over the Earth, we know sea levels have gone up and down hundreds of feet. So we, we have a delta, a river delta here. Further up in the delta, about 80 miles inland, there's sand dollars all over in these limestone bluffs. So we know sea level was that high at one time. Now we've got these trees 60 feet underwater, so sea level was that low. And it's just kind of a fascinating push and pull of the ocean through the climactic changes over the eons. So when did you finally get to visit the forest? I got out there a year ago, last August. Um, We went out. The first trip we tried to go out, the boat broke down. The second trip, the boat broke down. Of course, boats always break down, don't they? Yeah, absolutely, especially my boats. (laughs) Um, So we finally made it out there. And, you know, the way we dive here, we'll drop the anchor right over wherever the GPS number is. And then we swim down the anchor line to get to the spot because the water's a little murky. Otherwise, you get lost. I went down the anchor line, and when I hit the bottom, there it was, the first stump. And it was about as big around as a garbage can lid, but it had that very distinctive, irregular shape that a cypress trunk has. Uh-huh. And, and then it was surrounded by the knees. You know, cypress trees have knees. You see them in the swamps um, that stick up out of the water and kind of help hold them in place. And here was a cypress tree on the bottom of the ocean. And I swam a few feet, and there was another one. And a few feet more, another one. And I quickly realized they were all around me in every direction. Wow. I mean, this sounds almost magical down there. It's absolutely magical. It's totally enchanting. You know, these trees are covered in, in anemones and crabs and shrimp. And then you have these huge clouds of red snapper and grouper following you around. I was down there one day swimming along the ledge where the biggest stumps are. And I turned around, and there was this huge funnel shape of fish behind me. I mean, it must have been 200 snapper. And they were just following me around. When I stopped, they would stop. When I turned around, they all fell in behind me. <laughs> and what about the groupers? They're, they're very social. Oh, yeah, yeah. They'll come right up to you. Um, and, you know, some of the fish that are down there, the trigger fish, will actually come up and chew on your camera. You have to shoo them away. Um, they just seem to have no fear. You must have had a lot of fun because we saw this video that you made of your dive down there, and we'll put it on our website. Um, but have you ever experienced anything like that before? You know, I never have. I've been diving for some time, and, and from the moment I hit the bottom and saw the stumps, it was just exhilarating. Uh, you know, you knew you were in this sort of land of the lost, this place that shouldn't exist, but here it was. And... I got the camera out, I, I hit the record button, and I never turned it off. And I, that's exactly what I've done every dive I've made down there. And now I've been going down with three cameras, uh, <laughs> you know, setting them up in different locations just to kind of capture this place while it's there. 
because it, it may if we get a storm it could theoretically come into the gulf and change everything out there and bury this place up again you know it, it may be a very ephemeral place we may only get to see it for a little while so how old do, do scientists think these trees are well, I brought a few samples up, and I actually took a handsaw down there with me and cut them just like you'd cut a tree in your backyard. So I cut some sections out of them, uh, gave them to Christine DeLong at, at LSU, and she had them radiocarbon dated. And they had to do it three times in all, I think, because they didn't believe the results. They expected them to be 12,000 years old, uh, which was you know the last ice age. Instead, they came back radiocarbon dead each time they tested them, which means you know, they're 50,000 years old um, or, or, or longer. So if we can, you know, we, we want to get cores out of them and, and then they'll be able to count the rings and look at growth and measure carbon inside them, things like that, and learn a lot about the past climate. Um, we had a, another team come out from the University of Southern Mississippi and we had them do a sonar survey so we could try and get an extent of it because I've only been swimming around 300 yards of it. And it turns out it's it spread over close to a mile. It's much larger than we thought. And there appear to be some much bigger stumps. I'm due to go out there next week again and, and see what we can, if we can ground truth some of those other locations or seafloor truth them, I guess. Um, <laughs> hey, Ben, how did this happen? I mean, how could these trees be preserved for so long? Well, anytime in the ocean uh, or, or anywhere else, you, you're able to get oxygen out of the mix, um, you stop decomposition. All those little bacteria and things that, that decay, cause decay, need oxygen. And so buried under, you know, six inches, eight inches of sand, you, you get into this anoxic layer where there's no more oxygen. So these trees were covered up. We think Hurricane Katrina came through and dug this trench where the trees were now exposed. And so on the top layer of them, um, of the stumps, you know, the, that top layer, you can break it apart with your fingers. You know, it's very soft. And that's, there are all kinds of boring organisms digging holes in them. But once you get inside about a half inch or an inch, then the wood's very hard. And, you know, it's like cutting a tree down, a, a living tree. And in fact, with the samples I brought up, when you cut them, uh, you know, in the dry air, you actually smell the, the smell of the sap, and it just, just like you were cutting a, a fresh cypress tree down. It's really remarkable. Now that these trees have been uncovered, uh, how will they survive? Well, um, they won't. Ultimately, they'll decay just like any wood that was sitting on the bottom of the gulf. The fact that they're cypress gives them a little more longevity than other wood. You know, cypress is a very tough, rot-resistant wood. And, you know, for that reason, people love to make boats out of it. So, you know... I, I don't know how many years they'll last. I can tell um, they're decaying. You know, I've been visiting it now for a year. And so I've got all these uh, groups, companies calling me wanting to mine the logs. Um, you know, we, there's a phenomenon called sinker logs where old cypress trees that were actually so dense they couldn't float would sink to the bottom of rivers. And there are companies now that go around and salvage these things and they're worth quite a lot of money. So here we've got the ultimate sinker logs, you know, 50,000-year-old wood. So my goal is, is to have the place preserved um, before the numbers get out, the GPS numbers, so that people can go dive there. But I want it protected so that they can't carve up the logs. I don't want Fender and Gibson uh, to get a hold of them and start making 50,000-year-old guitars or, you know, 50,000-year-old coffee tables. I'd like to see this preserved and in this enchanted little environment where people can enjoy it. We first aired this story back in 2012, and the fight to protect Alabama's underwater forest from exploitation continues. 
Scientists and advocates have asked the Biden administration to designate the site a marine sanctuary. Call it biophilia, love of the outdoors, or simply common sense, research shows that spending time in nature can improve human health. In fact, the Japanese have a tradition known as Shinrin-yoku, or forest bathing, in which practitioners spend meditative time breathing in nature. Allegheny Front reporter Kara Holsoppel went to Frick Park in Pittsburgh to meet up with Mo Sherman, a medical Qigong therapist who leads regular forest bathing outings. Forest bathing started in Japan in the 80s as a form of preventative health care. And the idea is that in order to balance the stress of urban life, we need to expose ourselves to nature. And it's very simple, in fact, to just get yourself into nature and be present. How is it different than taking a walk or hiking? Well, we don't have a destination in mind and we don't rush. Just like when we take a bath in hot water, we settle in and relax. We can talk, but it's not a time to talk about work like we might do during a walk with a friend or to uh, complain about relationships. It's more a time to go inward. You're looking up. (laughs) Yes, when we first bathe, we want to look all around and just take it in. So we breathe in the healing energy. We also bring it in through our eyes. We bring it in through our ears, hearing the sounds. We bring it in through feeling, whether it's feeling the weather or touching a leaf. In Japan, the term for forest bathing is shinrin-yoku, and that literally means to bring in the forest. Bring it into yourself. Exactly. In the urban environment, we often have to put up what I call energetic shields to protect us. I love cities. I've grown up in a city, live in a city my whole life. But I can feel when I come into the forest, it's a chance for those shields to come down. Even the mud's kind of a soothing sound. (laughs) Yes, it is. I was just listening to that as well. Each session is different. There was one uh, session where we did a really fun exercise. We all put our hands on the same tree and we did a guided meditation where we pretended we were squirrels running up the tree. And we got to the top of the tree, looked around and ran back down. And at first I was wondering if anyone was going there with me or if it was just me, but (laughs) (laughs) I got some good feedback afterwards, so it was was a lot of fun. One of the nice things about forest bathing is it has been widely researched, mostly in Asia and also in Europe. And what brought the most recent attention to the United States is a review that was published in summer of 2017 that looked at 64 of those research studies, which are all based on empirical evidence. And... It really impacts so many systems of the body, the cardiovascular system, the respiratory system. And most profoundly, I think, to me right now, is how it impacts the immune system. Uh, If you do one session of forest bathing for even 20 minutes, we see an increase in what's called the NK cells or the natural killer cells. And these are the cells that protect us from viruses and even from tumor formations. Is it just the healing power of nature or is there something else going on? You know, like, what about being in nature is so good for us? There's many levels to it. I don't claim to understand them all. Trees emit something called phytoncides, and these are organic compounds that are released by trees to protect the trees themselves from parasites, disease, 
and they're actually beneficial for human health as well. So when we're around trees and we're around plant life, we're breathing those in. You know, I work with chi or energy, which is a little more abstract, but I think of each tree and each plant as being a unique life form with its own consciousness. And I think when we expose ourselves to a variety of different life forms, it benefits us. And I like to think it benefits trees as well. So I think it's a friendship. What do people report to you? Like, what do they say afterwards about the experience? Lots of times. Does anybody hate it? <laughs> no, I've never had anyone hate it or being unsatisfied. People usually feel more relaxed, more present. Um, and really, when you start to talk to people, you realize that they're processing some heavy stuff that they're going through in their lives. Um, and it helps them with that. And people report feeling overall better is the general feeling you get. I feel great. People are chatty, which is always a good sign after a healing session or after a group event when people feel chatty. It means the energy is flowing. It means they're feeling uplifted and feeling open to sharing and receiving. I'm glad I didn't cancel. <laughs> Me too. Yeah, this is great. You can feel the benefits almost immediately. Um, and then notice how they last how they last with you. Uh, lots of times I'll feel them wearing off, and that's when I'll get myself back to the park, back to the forest. Once you learn how to forest bathe, you can do it anytime. Uh, you don't need a guide, although it's more fun when you come do it with, with a group. And uh, But you can do it yourself once you know how to do it. So it's, it's like that saying, you know, give a person a fish, they eat for a day, teach them how to fish, and they can eat forever. Uh, I think forest bathing is so essential to modern life and creating a balance and health in the modern environment. Kara Holsoppel's report comes to us courtesy of the Allegheny Front. And by the way, most Sherman says that if you are in a crunch for time, simply sitting under a tree for a while can change your energy and mood. You can hear our program anytime on our website or get an audio download. The address is LOE.org. That's LOE.org. There you'll also find pictures and more information about our stories. And we'd like to hear from you. You can reach us at comments at LOE.org. Once again, comments at LOE.org. Our postal address is Post Office Box 99007, Boston, Massachusetts, 02199. You can call our listener line anytime at 617-287-4121. That's 617-287-4121. Life on Earth likely began in the primordial soup of the ancient ocean. And humans still carry that original home in our bodies. The salinity in the plasma of our blood is remarkably similar to that of the ocean, for example. And in a way, Living on Earth's explorer-in-residence Mark Seth Lender says he longs to return. From the far and the wide, at the fall and the waves rise, a crescent moon of dorsal fin, an archipelago of long forms, floating islands turning wide, 
The flash of pallid sun in the damp of arctic circle light. Like magic, they come. Bottlenose whales in alongside. Some pass under the keel, and finding none like us, return. They raise themselves as much as they can, to make their deep eyes shallow to see as much as they can, as long as we can. As we drift, engines cut, a listing hulk, and they follow looking up and up. Their desire they cannot escape is my desire I cannot escape to look into the eyes of the other. This is how we speak each to the other. I do not want to leave here. If I could, I would abandon ship, stand on the rail and plunge. If only my blood would not freeze. If only I could hold my breath and dive like them. If only to quench my thirst, I could drink brine. We came from the sea and are still of it. Our beating hearts, the rocking of the tide, brought inside so we could walk away. Having walked, there is no turning back. Flank speed into the starless dark, we rove, the helmsman clinging to the wheel, the wave crest snapping at our heels, ice scrapes its nails along the hull, its prying fingers at the watertight doors, and I am different than I was before. That's Living on Earth's Explorer-in-Residence, Mark Seth Lender. Coming up, through hiking, 2,600 miles on the Pacific Crest Trail. That's just ahead on Living on Earth. Support for Living on Earth comes from Sailors for the Sea and Oceana, helping boaters race clean, sail green, and protect the seas they love. More information at sailorsforthesea.org. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. In a typical year, several hundred intrepid hikers walk all the way from Mexico to Canada, along the Pacific Crest Trail. At more than 2,600 miles long, it covers some of the most challenging and spectacular terrain in North America. But it's not just about the pretty scenery. In his book, Journeys North, the Pacific Crest Trail, author Barney Scout Mann writes about the tight-knit community he and his wife Sandy found when they hiked the PCT. He spoke with Living on Earth's Bobby Bascom. So what drew you and your wife, Sandy, to hike the trail back in 2007? So you have to go ways back. Both of us fell in love with backpacking at about the same age. I was 13 years old, and I was born into a household with parents who don't camp. But they took me, uh, age 11, 12, 13, to um, Boy Scout meetings. And there, at age 13, I went on a 50-mile backpack in the Sierra Nevada, John Muir's Range of Light. Mm. I was always been... The smallest boy in any class at school, which is hard on a boy. It's no fun. I had to dance as fast as I could to make sure I wasn't the kid picked on. and didn't always work. But out there, I saw stuff that I'd only seen on a TV screen. I grew up in Los Angeles. And so bears were not behind bars. I actually could see one. And hearing a beaver tail slap in a stream and seeing it, this was the real deal. Mm. 
And the other thing was, out there, as long as I walked, and all right, I did have a 35-pound pack on a not 80-pound body, and that was hard. It was. But out there, as long as I kept up, I was the same as the big boys. So at age 13, I fell in love with backpacking. And for Sandy, the same. My wife, Sandy, who uh, has the trail name Frodo, and actually Scout is not my given name, but to thousands of people, they only know us as Scout and her trail name Frodo. She too, she'd see her brothers go off to on Boy Scout campouts. She'd think, I can hike. I want to do that. And it wasn't until later as a teen she got her chance. And as she said, uh, when we met a few years later, if I hadn't been a backpacker, she, she wouldn't have married me. <laughs> In 2003, we'd already begun thinking seriously about doing a thru-hike, as they call it, doing the entire Pacific Crest Trail. And we went out on the John Muir Trail, which is only, and we use the word only very strangely in this community, only 211 miles. We wanted to see if we'd come off that still being as enthused about doing a thru-hike. And obviously we did, mm -hmm. because in 2007, the summer of our 30th wedding anniversary, we set out to hike the Pacific Crest Trail. Mm, wonderful. Well, let's get a lay of the land here. You start your trip from San Diego, you make your way down to uh, the Mexico border, and then walk all the way up to Canada. How does the landscape change as the PCT makes its way from each border? Well, there's both a micro and a macro answer. The macro is it changes dramatically. You have some landscape that is out of the uh, Lawrence of Arabia, sand dunes. It's one day in the Mojave, and you have some of it. And you have landscape that is, um, you are above treeline, it is barren, it is white granite that glitters in the alpine glow, and you have everything in between. So one uh, guidebook that identified 15 different plant and fauna zones, and the PCT goes through all of them. Mm -hmm. But you might think, okay, I'll be walking, and then one day I'll be in one thing, and then it'll slowly and gradually change. And it doesn't happen at all. The micro scale, literally in a half day's time, I can go through uh, easily and many times go through half of those different flora and fauna zones. I cross under a dirt underpass under Interstate 10, east from Los Angeles, at about 1,800 feet, and I'm in what looks to you like desert. And within, okay, not a half day, but uh, uh, two-thirds of a day, I have climbed up into a pine forest and I've gone through all the zones in between, the different desert zones, Oaken. And the other thing, it's not just the landscape changing. Because we're out for five months, we're walking through seasons. Hmm. I see a plant. And actually, in each of my three long hikes, I've done the Pacific Crest Trail, the uh, Cottonwood Divide Trail, and the Appalachian Trail. Each one is a plant called skunk cabbage or false hellbore. Mm -hmm. Each one of these trails, I would see it sprouting in the spring. Just the little tiny tips coming up, almost like a bulb. It's only about a foot and a half tall. Really thick, lush, green and then it has little flowers. And I know I'm reaching the end of my hike because at the first frost, a bit like a tomato plant, the plant just collapses. And uh, it's like a starfish on the ground. And I know it's my hike is beginning to end when I've seen that. Mm. Well, let's talk a bit about the culture of these long hikes, starting with the idea of trail names. That's a nickname that's given to you by your fellow hikers. How did you get yours? And, and how did Sandy come to be known as Frodo? So imagine if you got um, dropped down into a completely different place. If you woke up one morning and you were in Hogwarts, or you woke up and you were in Narnia, would you still want to be Bobby? Mm, um, that sounds a little boring. 
This is actually a tradition that, that uh, started on the Appalachian Trail. You do something stupid, maybe it's a um, play on your name, but trail names are usually given, sometimes thrust on you, rather than something you choose, although that happens on occasion. A guy who was named Sky God as his trail name didn't take too long to realize that he had chosen that name for himself. (laughs) The name Scout dates back to our 2003 John Muir Trail hike. First day out, a young man attached himself to us like glue. 12 miles later, we're climbing up Half Dome, and he was just out of high school. The two of us must have looked like parental types. And I hear this question behind me, and the question is, what's the most important thing you've done in your life? And at that point, I probably had three, four, five truthful answers to that. But the one that came out of my mouth was, I was scoutmaster of a large Boy Scout troop for five years. And scoutmaster is a bit pretentious. And the book that we torn up, and yes, we used to tear up books and put a, a 150 pages at a time in our resupply up the trail, uh, so we wouldn't have to carry the whole book at the time. Mm. Uh, the book we'd done that to and that we were reading was To Kill a Mockingbird. And who would not want to be named after nine-year-old Scout Finch? Mm. Mm. Frodo, I hope we have some uh, LOTR, some Lord of the Rings fans out there. Frodo comes from a, it's my fault, about a year before we, we hiked in 2007, I woke up and realized, oh my gosh, that's going to be the summer of our 30th wedding anniversary. She's not a jewelry person, but I really wanted to do something special. So literally, the idea sprang into my head, whole cloth. I could see a Pacific Crest Trail ring, a custom ring. And you could look at it from four or five feet away, and you'd see the trail symbol, that pregnant triangle, as we call it, with the tree in the center and a mountain's backdrop. Mm-hmm. And in the channel would be a small outline of the northern and southern monuments and of the two primary mountains that you see on the trail, Mount Shasta and Mount Hood. I drove a uh, jeweler crazy for about six months, but she actually did it. Hmm. I give her the ring. We both cry. And if she was here, she said, yeah, you cried more, which is true. (laughs) I I did. And the next day, we've had a number of hikers who uh, I had shown before I gave it to her. And all but as a group, they accosted her. Uh, they, we, we want to see, you know, show us the ring. But they said, we know your trail name. You are the ring bearer. You're going on a long quest, a dangerous journey. You are Frodo. <laughs> and to this day, 13 years later, literally thousands of people, if not tens of thousands, know her simply as Frodo. Yeah. And on her hand, she still wears the one ring. Oh, lovely. And there are also people that are called trail angels. You and Frodo became known as trail angels for um, hosting people in your home. Can you tell us about that, please? So you start with trail magic. And trail magic is literally any act of kindness toward a hiker, whether you pick up a hitchhiking hiker, whether uh, you have a bit of your town lunch left over, you're going out on a day hike, and uh, you run into a longer-distance hiker, and you see them eyeing that piece of pizza you're just planning and taking home and throwing away, and you give it to them, and you've just made their day. <laughs> That's trail magic, and the, you who have done that is a trail angel. Mm. And it goes from small to large. What we do is probably a bit large and maybe even obsessive. <laughs> For about two months, we host hikers in our home. People uh, from all over, about third are internationals. And we'll have 30 to 40 hikers here a night, and we have this core of volunteers because it's all free we had so much kindness in 2007 that came our way 
you know, we're out there in these small towns. We don't have the things we usually have at disposal. And so many times and places along the way, we had a trail magic mm. from Trail Angels. Be able to give back is, uh, is great. That seems like something that's so rare in your day-to-day life, both A, relying on the kindness of strangers and having that appreciation for your fellow people and, and feeling like you want to give back to them, the people that have been so generous with you. That's one of the things I love about the outdoors. It's one of the reasons I wrote the book, too. So people who um, their comfort zone is their couch, they can have a moment to experience what it's really like to be out there. And one of the neat things, as my wife likes to say, she thought you know, the hike was going to be so much about the landscape and stunning views, the pain and deprivation and time, you know, the physical challenge. But at the end of the day, what it was really about, gosh, I'm going to tear up a little bit. It was about the people. Mm-hmm. If you and I were coming at each other on a trail, and whether we're out there overnight, a week, or you know, in my case, five months, I would look at you from afar, or a couple hundred yards away, and I'd say, oh, there's another person. I would think this person would give me the shirt off their back. Mm. And I would anticipate you would have the same thought in your mind, that the default attitude is we're kind to each other. I tell people that um, out there on the trail, I found the community of people I always wanted to be with and I never knew existed. Mm. Is that what keeps you coming back to these long trail hikes that you do? Why do I come back to it? A lot of reasons. A lot of reasons. One of which, of course, is that rich, rich sense of camaraderie. The other is, well, the best way to explain it is our hike of the Pacific Crest Trail is 13 years ago. And today, as I'm talking, I'm 69 years old. I was out there for 155 days. And Bobby, today, right now, I could sit here and tell you a story for each and every one of those 155 days. Mm. We are open out there in an entirely different way. We imprint differently. And around any bend, at any moment, a small miracle can happen. So you have this great story in your book about a big bear that you encountered on the trail one day. Can you tell us that story, please? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I love it. Although it doesn't necessarily put me in the best light. Well. (laughs) So we are a thousand miles up the trail. We are actually just west of Lake Tahoe. And people we've leapfrogged with, that's uh, you'll see for a couple days and you won't see for a week, or you might have a break with and then see him the next day. They've all seen a bear. Now that they have their pictures and they have their bear stories and we have not seen a bear yet. Mm. What's wrong with us? And it's not that we haven't done many other earlier trips, but we don't have our Pacific Crest Trail bear story yet. And we've gone through the, uh, the country where it's most likely in the Sierra Nevada. So my wife and I are camping alone, which we did just over the majority of the time. And we were cowboy camping, which means not a tent. It was nice enough and we enjoy that, the camp in the stars. We would trade off every night. One of us would uh, do dinner, and the other of us would set up our little campsite. So that's what I'm doing. I'm laying out our sleeping bags. My wife is about 20 feet away. And the other side of her, about 50 feet away, I see pull around this large rock, the largest black bear I have seen in the wild. Mm. Beautiful specimen. Height of summer, sleek coat, actually cinnamon-colored, as black bears can be. And as I like to say, this thing was the size of a small Volkswagen. And I can tell, as I see him, I can tell by his aspect where he's looking, he is not aware of us yet. 
The wind direction is such, and he's looking away. So what's my first move? <laughs> There's me. Between me and the bear is my wife, right? My first mood is a quick hand down, camera up, and I get off two shots. <laughs> but all the while I'm watching him. <laughs> and then I get her attention to go, just make a little noise. She looks at me and I flick at my head and she looks, sees the bear. And she takes the pot of food, puts it in our bear canister, cranks down the lid, comes over, stands by me. And she says, what do we do? She knows. What you want to do is look large and show them you're human. And I guess a lot of people think banging on pots means that we're human because that's what people can do uh, or clicking your hiking poles together. But what we did was we sang in two-part harmony, Leonard Cohen's Hallelujah <laughs> to mm. the pair. And as we reached the uh, chorus, he turns his massive head and looks at us long enough for us to know and acknowledge whose house we are truly in. And then he turns and slowly ambles away. Mm. So after walking some 2,600 miles, you're just a few dozen miles from the border with Canada, from completing this entire hike that you've been doing, when a series of powerful snowstorms dumped just several feet of snow on the Cascade Range in Washington where you were hiking, what was it like to face that final test when you were so close from finishing? Uh, we thought we had this in the back. Mm -hmm. And at that point, this is now uh, late September. At that point, you feel like you're in a vice. The days are going shorter, so I have less time to walk. I see it all around me. I see it in the colors. I see the huckleberries are now gone, and they're bright red. I feel it in the weather, and I feel it miserably at times in the weather. And you feel it in your body. I've been charging for now close to five months, and I'm getting messages from lots of different parts. And it's not just me. It's the young ones, too. We're being told we feel it. Yeah, It's time to shut down. And we know you can also feel we have Canada in the bag. It's uh, almost every year safe to finish by October 15th. I've seen people even finish on October 31st because the snows at some point shut down the trail. September 29th, we are 60 miles from the Canadian border. We need three days and two nights. Unbeknownst to us, as you just said, a series of storms have lined up out of the Gulf of Alaska. And that night, the first one hits. I remember waking up and seeing the first snowfall. Oh, this is sort of, you know, this is sort of cool. And then as it starts to weigh down on the tent and you have to knock it off. And then as we're waking up, two, three, four inches already in the ground. And what's this going to be like? How much more is it going to go? And that day, uh, we fairly quickly have a high pass. We're climbing first thing 2,000 feet. We have a young woman, Blazer, one of the uh, main other folks in the book, Journeys North. We were close enough that she would call us her trail parents, her trail mom and trail dad, and we'd call her a trail daughter. Mm. And Blazer, uh, her her jacket zipper is broken, and she's lost the glove. I have, I have taught snowshoe backpacking. I'm experienced in snow backpacking. And as we get toward the crest of Cutthroat Pass, what a name, huh? Snow's been getting worse and worse. It's now over our ankles, and trail finding is an issue. Uh, this is days before anyone routinely carried a GPS or you had one on your phone. Mm. Uh, we have paper maps, and we see four people we know. Guts, Chuck Wagon, Dalton, and Chigger. Do you love those trail names? <laughs> I do. Chuck Wagon, that's great. <laughs> yeah, uh, three guys and a gal. Chigger was a gal. They're heading toward us. Why are they heading toward us? This is wrong. And they say, we have just turned around 
the trail has become impossible to find. We're heading back to a roadhead. Uh, it's like the last paved road, five miles back down at the base. And we're going to hitch into the little tiny town Winthrop and see what the story is. Mm. We stand there in snow that's almost white out. And it's getting deeper by the moment. And for 10 minutes, I talk, weighing it over. And reluctantly, I said, okay, maybe it is the best thing. And I turn and I take one step south. I, who have been heading north for five months, and I stop in my tracks. I can't go south. And I open my mouth and I start to talk again. In the meantime, Blazer said, I'm doing whatever Scout and Frodo are doing. And we felt like the, mm. the rest of the group would do the same. My wife and I had a tacit agreement. She did something that, um, uh, as I'm talking there in the snow, it's the only time that she's ever done their marriage. We're now married 43 years. After about two minutes of me jawing again, she says, Scout, I'm exercising my veto. We're going back. Mm. And I stopped, stopped talking. And we started heading down. Yeah. And that was the first time... <laughs> We retreated from the snow. But you did finish eventually. You made it to Canada. Yes, I'm still here. And we did make it to Canada that year. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I imagine it, it, you make it sound like, a, you know, the geese that are flying south for the winter. They can't turn around and go north. That's just against what's ingrained in you at that point. Yeah. Yeah. There was this intense drive. Every night I'd go out and I'd brush my teeth. And on the Pacific Crest Trail, most nights were clear. And I'd look up in the sky and I'd spot the Big Dipper. And then I'd go from those two uh, sides of the pot and I'd go six lengths out and I'd eyeball the North Star. And I just think for a moment, that's the way I'm heading. That's what I'm doing. Scout Man's book is Journeys North, the Pacific Crest Trail. He spoke with Living on Earth's Bobby Bascom. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Naomi Ehrenberg, Bobby Bascom, Paloma Beltran, Anna Canny, Jenny Doring, Jay Feinstein, Mark Seth Lender, Don Lyman, Ainsley O'Neill, Jake Rigo, Joshua Syracusa, Tavara Tanujaya, and Yolanda Omari. Tom Tiger engineered our show. Allison Erichstein composed our themes. You can hear us anytime at LOE.org, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. And like us, please, on our Facebook page, Living on Earth. We tweet from at Living on Earth, and you can find us on Instagram, Living on Earth Radio. I'm Steve Kerwood. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from you, our listeners, and from the University of Massachusetts, Boston, in association with its School for the Environment, developing the next generation of environmental leaders, and from the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting strategic communications and collaboration in solving the world's most pressing environmental problems.